In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast, giving you an appetising teaser of all of our coverage from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu, Venezuela pushes rabbit as a food source. Russia celebrates a new national hero and the pros and cons of the cereal comma. But first, does China play fair was our cover line this week. Competition from China will only get fiercer. That calls for cool heads and wise policies, our leader argued. America's trade representative this week called China an unprecedented threat that cannot be tamed by existing trade rules. The European Union, worried by a spate of Chinese acquisitions, is drafting stricter rules on foreign investment. And all the while, China's strategy for modernizing its economy is adding further strain. At the heart of these tensions is a simple, overwhelming fact. Firms around the world face ever more intense competition from their Chinese rivals. China is not the first country to industrialize, but none has ever made the leap so rapidly and on such a monumental scale. And made in China certainly has a new ring to it these days. Little more than a decade ago, Chinese boom towns churned out zips, socks and cigarette lighters. Today, the country is at the global frontier of new technology, in everything from mobile payments to driverless cars. And though it's politically difficult, the best response to intense competition is to welcome it, we argued. Consumers will gain from lower costs and faster innovation. Misguided attempts to hold back the tide would not only lose those potential gains, but might also blow up the world trading system with catastrophic results. Rather than try to stop the loss of jobs, governments should provide retraining and a decent safety net. Both companies and governments need to spend more on education and research. Of course, some competition is difficult to deal with. The hardest type is that which is unfair, but not quite illegal. One approach is to coax China into behaving better by acting collectively. America, Europe and big Asian countries could jointly publish information about economic harm from China's policies, as they did by sharing details about overcapacity in the steel industry, nudging China into cutting its excesses. And you can read more about dealing with Chinese competition in this week's issue. Meanwhile, Venezuela has been trying to coax its hungry public into acting differently, or at least just eating differently. As an article in our Americas section reported, President Nicolas is he Nicolas or Nicolas sorry Maduro. As an article in our Americas section reported, President Nicolas Maduro has had a new idea to deal with his country's crippling food crisis: rabbits. Venezuela has a hunger crisis, with 12% of children suffering from acute malnutrition. But the country's socialist president Nicolas Maduro has a cunning plan. Under Plan Conejo, Plan Rabbit, poor settlements are to receive cages containing baby rabbits, which, when fattened up, will provide the protein and calories many people lack. Strange and perhaps shocking, depending on your disposition. Though it was popular in the old Soviet Union, but it does make more sense than some of Mr. Maduro's other ideas. They will breed like rabbits, he predicted. While shops run out of bread, butter, and other staples because of price controls and scarce foreign exchange, the rabbits will reproduce, oblivious of market forces. 
All that may be true, except there's one tiny problem with the plan which drove Freddie Bernal, the urban agriculture minister, hopping mad when he visited some of the new rabbit holders. People were naming the rabbits and taking them to bed, he told Mr Maduro in a cabinet meeting broadcast on state television. Some had put bows on them, Mr Bernal complained. People must understand that a rabbit is not a pet, but two and a half kilos of meat with high protein and low cholesterol. Try telling that to the kids. Over to Russia now, where a new monument has stolen the attention of the masses. The streets of Moscow feature statues to many great figures from Russia's past. Tolstoy, Pushkin, Tchaikovsky, and now a new national hero joining the ranks. Mikhail Kalashnikov, eponymous inventor of the rifle. His nine-metre-tall likeness, clad in a bomber jacket and cradling an AK-47, towers over the Garden Ring Road, one of the capital's main throughways. The reception for the new statue was overwhelmingly positive. He's so kind, he's holding it carefully like a baby, remarked Natalia Krustalyeva-Popova, a retired factory worker who came to see the sculpture. At the opening ceremony, a lone protester was promptly detained while a priest sprinkled the bronze behemoth with holy water. So, with one dissenting voice silenced, the rest of the crowd were left to bask in the glory of his creation. The AK-47, AK for Avtomat Kalashnikova, or Kalashnikov's automatic, and 47 for the year the prototypes were completed, has become one of the world's most popular and lethal weapons, believed to account for one-fifth of all firearms. Were he still alive, Mr Kalashnikov might have rude being written into history for this. He called his invention a defensive weapon, but its lightness and reliability made it the gun of choice for rebels, terrorists and especially child soldiers. In his later years, Kalashnikov was racked with guilt. He wrote to the orthodox patriarch of his unbearable spiritual pain. But that small point was never going to stop nationalist cultural appropriation, especially not these days. At the unveiling, Russia's culture minister, Vladimir Medinsky, presented him as the manifestation of the best qualities of the Russian man and his rifle as a true cultural brand of Russia. Well, move over Chekhov then. Now for a taste of our other podcast this week, and in The Economist Asks, we ran a special on Germany's elections. Jeremy Cliff, our Berlin bureau chief, and I were out and about in the run-up to yesterday's general election. And he reported on the CDU's use of a new app for canvassing voters who might hide behind closed doors. Germany has especially strict privacy laws, making the sort of door-to-door campaigning common in Britain and America impossible. But the app skirts carefully around them. It never uses voters' names or addresses, for example. The CDU used it successfully earlier this year in state elections, where it unexpectedly coaxed high numbers of CDU supporters to polling stations. Karl Schaumann told me what incentives are built into the app to encourage volunteers to knock on as many doors as possible and get a better ranking in the app. And then it's a very, very special um, gimmick. Um, the first 10 people every week get a personal phone call by Angela Merkel. Wow. So I guess that's uh, quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's quite an incentive. Yeah. In Babbage, our science and technology show some startling news. Many antivenoms for snake bites may be little more than snake oil. 
It seems venoms vary from place to place, something that hasn't been taken into account. Our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan, spoke to host Jason Palmer about the implications. What really matters is whether or not the venom varies geographically. And then you got to milk those snakes and get the antibodies produced into the antivenom and make sure that you've got a comprehensive array of antibodies rather than just saying, okay, right, that's from species Echis carinatus. Yeah, okay, fine, it's also found in India, but we don't need that one because they're the same species. That kind of logic is going to get the antivenom companies into a lot of trouble. Okay, look, just, just one last question because the, the word is, is fairly evocative, at least in, in my mind. How do you go about milking a snake? You have to capture the snake. You have to hold it in a position such that it can't bite you, and then you actually have to put pressure on the venom glands so that venom comes out of the fang. Exactly how that all happens, I don't know, but that's the basic premise. So for other snake-milking tips and many more crucial lessons about science, download Babbage every Wednesday. In Tuesday's Money Talks, we had a special guest on air, Jay Balvin. The Colombian music superstar joined us to discuss the meteoric rise of Latin music around the world. And he had some news for us and his fans at the end of the show. I think I'm about to, you know, to drop a, a remix, an official remix of Mi Gente. You're gonna, you guys are going to go crazy when you see who's going to be in the remix. I'm going to show the world that our movement is so strong that that's you know, how we're going to get Jay Balvin, thank you very much for joining us. And, and Sarah Maslin, thanks for coming to the studio as well. Muchísimas gracias, Jay. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope it's going to be, we're going to have a next interview telling about the remix. Well, <laughs> well, well I, I, hope, I hope the Economist Money Talks podcast will be the place where the remix gets its first airing. <laughs> believe me, believe me, believe me that I'm telling you, I think you're the first people that I say about the remix. Do keep tuning in to Money Talks if you want to hear that exclusive new song and many of our exclusives too. And finally, we head back to the print issue for our last taste of this week's coverage. Johnson, our language columnist, took a look at the role of grammar's most important yet controversial character, the comma. Oh yes, we argue about it here at The Economist every day. The innocent punctuation mark is the most likely to start fights between grammar gurus, and as we discovered, it can be the settling factor in high-stakes disputes too. A law in Maine excluded from overtime pay the canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, marketing, storing, packing for shipment or distribution of certain products. But is the end of that list, packing for shipment or distribution, one activity? Or are they distinct things? One, packing for shipment, and two, distribution. The company argued that they were distinct – and that although lorry drivers do not pack, they do distribute and are hence exempt from overtime pay. A lot of money was at stake here, all resting on the lack of a comma, and in the end, the lorry drivers won. But it wasn't just the drivers claiming victory. Fans of the serial or Oxford comma exulted. Had distribution been set off by an extra comma, there would have been no ambiguity at all and no dispute. The serial comma appears before the last item in a list. Red, white and blue has it. Red, white and blue does not. Some style guides require it. Others, including The Economists, do not. How can there be so much disagreement over a mere piece of punctuation? Those who like hard rules must accept that the comma is an oddball among the punctuation marks in two ways. First, it does a lot of different jobs. 
one usage book lists 11 functions and it is typically the longest section in a description of punctuation. Second, it is frequently optional. And this lackadaisical attitude breeds confusion. Much other punctuation is mandatory, including that statements end in full stops and questions in question marks. The comma, however, was not originally intended as a grammatical mark, but a place to pause for breath. For Johnson, compromise is the best option. As much as people want the rules for commas to be ironclad, no mechanistic rules can substitute for slow proofreading and redrafting, or even better, a good editor. And having some flexibility in punctuation is one of the things that gives an author a style. Finally, writers may be mild-mannered, but everyone likes to get fighting mad once in a while. Sometimes little things are bigger than they seem. And that, comma, is the end of this week's tasting menu full stop. If you've any thoughts about any of our shows, you can email them to us, radio at economist.com, tweet us at Economist Radio. Don't forget to rate our podcast on the Apple Store in London. This is The Economist. 